Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I was in church a couple of weeks ago. Get over it. Just before Mass started, I was doing my pre-match preparations. When the priest came walking down the centre aisle, stopped at the pew at which I knelt and uh, slid a book along the pew to me like a Wild West barman might slide a bottle of whiskey along the bar to a melancholy gunslinger. And he nodded in a way that suggested, uh, you'll, you'll like that. And then on he went. And the book that um, slammed into my left thigh was the Faber book of war poetry, a fat hardback anthology. Now, no one loves a poetry anthology more than I do. I love to just sit and wallow and experience old favourites, find some new stuff. It's, oh, it's, it's how I feel most happy and relaxed, I would say. I wouldn't normally choose, I'll be honest, an anthology of war poetry. My parish priest was once the vicar general of the British army, so that might give you an inkling as to why that was his preference, that particular genre of poetry. I've always, I think like a lot of people, we have discussed wars in these podcasts before, not too long ago. In fact, uh, we had Simon Armitage talking of the Duke of Edinburgh's war experiences. But despite all that, when someone mentions war poetry, I always think of World War One. That seems to be what war poetry is to me. I don't know why that is, because, you know, I've read the Iliad and um, the Charge of the Light Brigade and all that, but that seems to be where poetry lies in the modern world, is um, World War One. Wilfred Owen, Siegfried, Sassoon, not so World War Two. World War Two seems to be largely associated with the atom bomb and World War One with the harmonica. It has a more sort of romantic feel for a lot of people. Having said that, I once heard an unexpected public reading of uh, a World War Two poem. It was Henry Reed's Naming of Parts, which is a poem about a instructive lecture about the various parts of an Enfield rifle. And it was recited at a book launch I went to. And the idea of the book launch, I had a new book out myself at the time. The idea was you went up and you sold your wares for about five or ten minutes, said why people should read your book, and then you got off stage. The former middleweight champion Chris Eubank was one of the people selling his wares that night, an autobiography. And how do you sell a boxer's autobiography? Well, you talk about the great fighters mentioned and the great fights. Not Chris Eubank, always a rebel. What he did was recite from memory naming of parts. And really, Chris Eubank saying this is the lower sling swivel is a memory that will always live with me. Anyway, so I wasn't 
delighted that this was a war poetry anthology. But you know what? Once I got stuck into it, I thought, wow, there's some brilliant stuff in here. And one of the particular joys of um, reading a poetry anthology is not only that you find poems that you've never heard before, but that you find poets who you've never heard of before. And then you can go off and investigate their work and it could be a whole new avenue of joy. In this book, I have discovered two poets who I find intensely interesting and who I will pursue one from World War One and one from World War Two, and I'm just going to tell you about these poems. They are very different poems in many ways. This book is filled, the Faber Book of War Poetry, with various types of war poem, some that you really wouldn't expect, some that you would. So with that in mind, three of the sections in the book are killing weapons, we might have been expecting those two, and my own particular favourite, the consolations of obscenity, a welcome surprise. So loads of good stuff, but these two were the ones that absolutely grabbed me, these two poems and these two poets. And the first one is called Mess Deck, and it's by Alan Ross. Alan Ross was uh, is an English man, who joined the Royal Navy in 1941 to fight in World War II. He was a really good cricketer, and I'm a massive cricket fan, so I find that drew me to him as well. He actually went on to become a very successful cricket journalist, and he also edited the um, London Magazine, a sort of literary journal, lived to 2001. Now, that might sound like a spoiler in war poetry, but I am determined not to be ghoulish about this. Alan Ross made it through World War II, I'm happy to say, and became one of those London literary figures who liked good food and red wine and conversation into the early hours. But this poem is uh, set on a warship in World War II. Alan Ross served on destroyers in World War II, which I'm not going to pretend I know specifically what a destroyer is, but it's a kind of warship, and I'm guessing it does what it says on the tin. But as ever with these poems... I'm not saying that the speaker of the poem is absolutely Alan Ross, but with war poetry, when people have fought in the war, it gets much more difficult to separate the voice of the poem and the poet, because you think, well, they were there and they did do it, but I'm going to do my best to do that. Here goes. It's a sonnet, Alan Ross's mess deck, it doesn't follow all the rules. It's it's irregular in line length. Having said that, alternative lines rhyme and it ends with a good old-fashioned sonnet summing up rhyming couplet. It's a sort of a slightly laid-back form of the what can be a very tight structure, the, uh, the sonnet. The sonnet is kind of perfect for this. I wish in a way he'd gone for a real tight version of it, one of those, you know, 
six lines saying one thing and then uh, four lines saying something else, four lines another, or um, the old four 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 two formation. Anyway, you went for a looser version. I, the reason I think I'd rather you've gone for a tighter structure is this poem is all about feeling stuck in this tight space and poets call the sonnet the box sometimes because you've got to get everything into this tight structure however it is called mess deck and mess deck on a a boat you probably know is where people relax eat sleep so yeah why shouldn't the sonnet form put its feet up slightly in this but it's still 14 lines and it does have a lovely rhyming couplet at the end so don't panic you sonnet lovers here goes the first seven lines the first half of mess deck and i just feel how claustrophobic stifling and airless this is The bulkhead sweating, and under naked bulbs, men writing letters, playing Ludo. The light cuts their arms off at the wrist, only the dice lives. Hammocks swing, nuzzling in tight, like foals in flanks of mares. Bare shoulders glisten with oil, tattoo marks rippling their scales on mermaids' or girls' thighs as dice are shaken, cards played. So this is men of war at rest, if you can ever be completely at rest when you're on a warship out at sea. That first line, the bulkhead sweating and under naked bulbs. It's so tense, this poem. It's so claustrophobic. There's such a strong smell of B.O. that even the bulkhead, the sort of walls, the partitions that you get below deck on a ship, even they are sweating. And naked bulbs, even that, they sound vulnerable and exposed just like the men are these naked bulbs swinging there making it stark giving you a sense of what the light is like men writing letters playing ludo these letter writers reaching out for what isn't there that outside world that they are separated from that they have left behind and playing Ludo, something that runs through this poem is people playing Ludo, the role of the dice or playing cards. Symbols of chance, of luck, of fate. And this is one of the joys of descriptive poetry like this. To the men of this poem and seemingly to the speaker, these details like the sweating bulkhead and the naked bulbs and the symbols of chance and fate. They go apparently on notice, but for the reader who's primed to seek depth and ambiguity in poetry, they stand out ominously. Ludo seems like a pretty innocuous pastime, but the rolling dice, it just makes me think of the scary randomness of war the light cuts their arms off at the wrist only the dice lives now if this was a poem about 
oh, a casino in, let's say, the 1980s. We could accept that image of um, arms being cut off at the wrist as a sort of a, I don't know, a deft description of the way cards and other games are played often in a tight pool of light and so only the player's hands are visible. But in a war poem about men on the destroyer at sea, it is hard to avoid the thought that arms cut off at the wrist could be a physical horror after an attack. So the metaphor could be made literal by war. Not only these men, but poetry itself, if you like, could be mangled by horrible reality as a uh, beautiful metaphor becomes just raw meat. Only the dice lives, only that is animated and alive. Hammocks swing nozzling in tight, like foals into flanks of mares. And we've all seen foals, um, young horses, squeezed in tight next to their mother in a field, looking for security, protection and some sense of home. And that's what these men are all yearning for in some way. And then we go into this, it's such a male environment, obviously, a warship in World War Two. Bare shoulders glisten with oil, tattoo marks rippling their scales. You know, um, tattoos certainly then, I think, gave a slightly scaly finish to the skin. Bare shoulders glisten with oil, tattoo marks rippling their scales on mermaids or girls' thighs as dice are shaken, cards played. And these are the kind of tattoos favoured by men in the 1940s. Mermaids, no doubt, rippling their own scales. And sexy ladies' thighs revealed. Mermaids, well, certainly in British folklore, are often associated with shipwreck and disaster at sea. So again, we, the careful reader, get that. But it probably isn't a portent of doom for the men who bear those tattoos. Girls' thighs, of course, another echo of home, of absence, of longing, I suppose. Okay, that's the first half of the sonnet. I didn't dwell on the rhymes because I think they can disjoint if you try to read it. The bulkhead sweating and under naked bulbs, men writing letters, playing Ludo, the light cuts their arms off at the wrist, only the dice lives hammock swing, nozzling in tight. But it's in there. And even if you, sometimes you don't even notice there are rhymes in a poem, but you are feeling them on some level, believe me. The second half of this poem, we reach for, I'm going to stop it there, we. At last the speaker has placed himself in this environment. Before that, the bulkhead sweated on the naked bulbs, the light cuts their arms off, only the dice. It's just observation. We get no sense of the speaker's actual involvement but here we reach for sleep like a gas there are no eyes in this poem the speaker i think is clearly showing that they are all in this together these are 
an os. There is no room for an I. Okay. We reach for sleep like a gas, randy for oblivion, but laid out on lockers, some get waylaid and lie stiff, running off films in the mind's dark room. The air soupy yet still cold, a beam sea rattles, cup smelling of stale tea, knocks over a broom. The light is watery, like the light of the seabed. Marooned in it, stealthy as fishes, we may even be dead. Right. We reach for sleep like a gas, so we really want to be knocked out. We want to. This is the only way these guys get out of this tight, tense, airless environment is sleep. We reach for sleep like a gas, randy for oblivion. And after the girl's thighs and the presumably bosty mermaids, it turns out that what these men are most randy for is oblivion, sleep, escape from this. Oblivion also, I think, makes you think of death and terms like gas, oblivion, arms off at the wrist, all that stuff. It, it, there's constant references in this to what could happen to these men. It's almost like the speaker can't get the thoughts of death out of his head. But laid out on lockers, some get waylaid and lie stiff, running off films in the mind's dark room. Now, again, if you want images of death, laid out on lockers, some get waylaid and lie stiff. Both sound like descriptions of corpses uh, running off films in the mind's dark room. I think. Running off films in the mind's dark room is an image of a photographer in a dark room spooling through photographs to see what they've got, reviewing images. But here, it's the idea of men who are on their way to oblivion to sleep, but who've been waylaid by memories, images of home, of the past, haunting images of loved ones, and they spool through them in the mind's dark room, and that keeps them awake. And yes, this could be a reference to masturbation uh, after those girls' thighs and the idea of being randy for oblivion, the image of men who lie stiff, running off films in the mind's dark room. Well, it's, it's another possible interpretation. The air soupy yet still cold. So it's thick in there, the air, like soup, the, the B.O., the, you know, the sweaty bulkhead we had before. I have to say that uh, this makes me think of a particular World War II reference. And I wonder if soupy was a sort of a hip term to use in World War II, because I don't know if you're familiar with Glenn Miller, the famous American big band leader who was a legendary figure in World War II and who um, was lost in action. His plane went down and nobody knows quite what happened to Glenn Miller. But there is a biopic. I know some people call them biopics, but I think that is 
wrong. There is a biopic of uh, Glenn Miller, an old, uh, an old one called The Glenn Miller Story, starring James Stewart, one of my favourite old Hollywood actors. And the last glimpse you get of Glenn Miller in the film is him standing on the steps of the plane he's about to climb into for his last ever flight. And he looks around at a sort of a foggy day and says, uh, James Stewart says, it's a little soupy, ain't it? And that's the last we hear of him. So maybe soupy was a a word for a, a thick atmosphere in World War II. The air soupy, it's still cold. You can't imagine it's physically cold in here with that bulkhead sweating and all these men lying around getting overexcited. I think that coldness is an internal cold, a fear, if you like. A beam sea rattles, cop smelling of stale tea knocks over a broom. A beam sea is a current that's running at 45 degrees to the hull of the ship. So the two trajectories clash and it makes the ship shake from side to side. Again, a sense of power and threat from external forces the light is watery this is, this is now that the sonnets summing up it's two line rhyming couplet ending the light is watery like the light of the seabed marooned in it stealthy as fishes we may even be dead so the light's watery like the light of the seabed and Of course, again, that's pretty ominous because they could end up on the seabed in the seabed's watery light. And the the terms that he uses, marooned in it, stealthy as fishes, marooned, you associate with shipwreck. Stealthy as fishes. Fishes, when they're stealthy, I'm assuming he refers to the piscine characteristic of if you're near a predator rather than running away, you just try and be as not noticeable as possible so that the predator might pass you by. In other words, you play dead. And these men on a warship are, of course, potentially prey to predators, the enemy. So they are being as stealthy as fishes, but it also suggests danger. They are in danger. That last phrase, we may even be dead, rhyming with like the light of the seabed. We may even be dead as opposed to just playing dead. At first, it feels like a poetic flourish. We may even be dead. But it's so realist, this um, poem. So nuts and bolts, so sweaty. You can believe that the speaker actually questions that whether they are dead or not, that death and life are so close together in this situation that he may have missed the join, that he might have gone from one to the other without even feeling the shudder. It's, I think, a really, as I say, atmospheric, I'm sweating reading it. And I love that. He really gets across Alan Ross, I think, this sense of men in a box under threat. 
Okay, we're going to go to World War One now and to a poet, Alan Seeger. Alan Seeger's an American poet. He was born to uh, just a little bit of his background. He was born into a uh, well-off family, went to Harvard um, with T.S. Eliot, and he was a genuine bohemian, Alan Seeger. He, uh, he moved to Greenwich Village, which is uh, certainly bohemian central in America, and then to Paris, which is bohemian central for the whole planet, or certainly was then. I'm happy that he lived in Greenwich Village because Greenwich Village, as you may know, is seen as the spiritual home of American folk music. And Alan Seeger was the uncle of Pete Seeger and Peggy Seeger, two absolute giants of American folk music. So it is good that he lived in Greenwich Village and and then to Paris. So he was a very arty, very literary, very poetic guy. He was friends with John Reed as well, who who was a controversial figure in America, who was present at the Russian Revolution as it unfolded and so was viewed with some suspicion, to say the least. So anyway, he's living in Paris, the bohemian life, writing poetry, no doubt smoking galois and drinking absinthe. And then it all gets spoiled. Germany declare war on France in 1914. And he doesn't go back to America, Alan Seeger. Au contraire, as he probably said to his friends at the time. He joined the Foreign Legion of the French Army, notoriously tough unit where, as you may have guessed, people who aren't French fight on behalf of France. He'd sort of fallen in love with France uh, whilst living in Paris and was prepared to fight for them. So here comes the poem. It's a war poem. It couldn't be much more different from Alan Ross's Mestec. You might say it is the harmonica to Mestec's atom bomb. So uh, it's a more romantic, non-realist piece in the main. I'll give you the first stanza. See what you think of this. This is Alan Seeger's poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death. I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. What's going on here, you ask yourself? I have a rendezvous with death. And oh, you can tell this guy's a Francophile. I'm, I hear him enjoying the word rendezvous in that first line. At some disputed barricade. Now, that sounds more like the World War I poetry we're after, doesn't it? At some disputed barricade. There's an element of this poem which feels a bit like a cut-up. You know that cut-up tradition in poetry 
where you cut things up from various sources. They could be newspapers, they could be other poems, they could be novels. And then you move the lines or the words around and create something new. I'm uh, quite a fan of William S. Burroughs and him and his friend Brian Giesin used to do this stuff and create new poetry from a sort of womble approach to uh, creating poetry. I'm not suggesting for a second that Alan Seeger did that, but this poem, I think he's trying to represent a speaker who is at war and whose mind leaps from one topic to another, a romantic self-dramatisation and then to a very realist thing of where he actually is and what's going on. And then to a poetic worldview, which might discuss spring coming back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. So if we hear it again, you can hear those cut-ups. I have a rendezvous with death. It's a very dramatic, romantic opening line. At some disputed barricade, realist when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air, now we're into real classic poetics. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. Of course, we all enjoy, no matter how many times we've seen things similar, spring brings. It's just nice on the lips. Why spring? Interestingly, Henry Reid in that um Chris Eubank recitation, naming of parts. Henry Reid's poem, which is a World War II poem from 1942, that juxtaposes images of weaponry with spring. I suppose it's because spring represents life and rebirth and all that, and war, not so much. I also think that it feels in this poem like... He's let, he keeps saying when spring, you'll see that over and over again. Every time he refers to spring, when spring comes back with rustling shade, when spring brings back blue days and fair, it's coming spring. Of course, nothing, just because there's a war, it doesn't change the cycle of the seasons. They continue. And I think his rendezvous with death is meant to sound as inevitable as spring returning. Next stanza. It may be he shall take my hand. Do you remember what I said to you in Alan Ross's mess deck? There are no eyes in this poem. There's plenty of eyes and me's and my's in I Have a Rendezvous with Death by Alan Seeger. I think because it is a much more individual poem, you don't really get a sense of anyone else being at war except the speaker. This is a very self-conscious, you could say self-centred response to being at war. He speaks of death in this second stanza. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death. On some scarred slope of battered hill, when spring comes round again this year and the first meadow flowers appear.
So we've got this like a fantasy sequence. It's like something from a fantasy movie, the personification of death. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death. Now, the sort of images of death that we expect from war poetry, certainly World War I poetry, is not about death taking your hand and leading you into his dark land, closing your eyes and quenching your breath. It's often much more graphic and shocking and unpleasant than that. The speaker here... I'd be worried if I was in the French Foreign Legion fighting next to this guy because his view of death seems not very based on reality and there seems to be almost a longing in him. I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill. So again, we get a real bit of the war there on some scarred slope scarred by presumably artillery, men climbing it, barbed wire, etc. On some scarred slope of battered hill. And you notice that word some before when we had an actual reference to the business of war in stanza one at some disputed barricade. And here again on some scarred slope of battered hill. I think he's trying to get across the sort of randomness of war. It could happen anywhere this rendezvous with death when spring comes around again again there's that when spring it's inevitable when spring comes around again this year and the first meadow flowers appear right last stanza and now we go somewhere else i said this is like a man at war whose mind whose thoughts are zigzagging now suddenly he's in bed with his loved one. We weren't expecting that. God knows twere better to be deep pillowed in silk and scented down where love throbs out in blissful sleep, pulse nigh to pulse and breath to breath, where hushed awakenings are dear. And then we get a dot, dot, dot. So he's, now he's thinking about something else. But I've... A rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year. And I to my pledged word am true. I shall not fail that rendezvous. So he's in bed with his love at, suggesting God knows to a better, so better to be there than here. Twere better to be deep pillowed in silk and scented down where love throbs out in blissful sleep, pulse nigh to pulse and breath to breath. So it's better to be all oh, in these lovely silky pillows and scented down, down as in um, dock or goose feathers. So, you know, in a, a lovely cover on you in bed, lovely and warm where love throbs out in blissful sleep. I think that means the sound of a heartbeat or a breathing. Pulse night to pulse and breath to breath. That's how close they are together. Pulse to pulse and breath to breath, where hushed awakenings are dear. You know that moment when you wake up and your loved one is lying next to you, but the dot, dot, dot 
rips us out of that line of thinking and we're back in bot either rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town there's that song again so doesn't matter where it is could be anywhere but when spring trips north again this year and i to my pledge word am true i shall not fail that rendezvous so the sum at some disputed barricade on some scarred slope of battered hill at midnight in some flaming town it doesn't seem to matter to him but it does seem to matter that he keeps that appointment with death it seems to be as he says and i to my pledged word am true i shall not fail that rendezvous it seems to have decided the speaker that he must die in this war i mean this is not someone who's saying i will fight and risk it and if it comes it comes and i to my pledged word am true i shall not fail that rendezvous i'll be there and i think one of the main criticisms that people have of Alan Seeger's work, as I've read around him a bit since I discovered him in the, the Faber book of war poetry, is they feel that um, he lacks the realism of World War I poetry, that he's too romantic, too flowery. Now, that's a, a, a criticism that you might think is fair, and uh, when he's saying of death, it may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It does sound, it's too airy-fairy for this, you know, where's, this is World War I poetry, where's, where's the mod, where's the rats, where's the trench foot, where's the stupid officers who expected World War I to be like a slightly noisier version of the Henley Regatta. There's none of that. As I've said, people get romantic about World War I, but the poetry of that period is often very real and hits you hard in the gut. Well, check out the description of a man dying from a gas attack in Wilfred Owen's Dulciet Decorum Est, and you'll see what I mean. He... Alan Seeger, the poet, is a bohemian. He's a very artistic, poetic man. And one wonders if the reason the speaker talks like this about death is if Alan Seeger was seeing World War I as some sort of poetry. I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing to say. I have to tell you that he did keep his rendezvous with death. Alan Seeger died in 1916 in the very early days of the Somme offensive. And yeah, the, the, the death seems like a sort of poetic conceit in this, a sort of gothic device to give a bit of uh, tension to the poem. But when you find out that he didn't make it through the war, this is what I mean about the way war poetry, that separation of biography and um, poetry that separation of the poet and the speaker gets harder and harder because it does make a difference if neither of these men had fought in the wars they're describing would we feel a bit uneasy about their 
poetry, would we feel it was um, a bit ghoulish to be writing about a war they weren't in? But as they were in the war, it's kind of tempting to start equating the speaker with the poet. And that's uh, always a mistake, I think. Look, those are the two poems and the two poets I discovered, Alan Seeger and Alan Ross. I don't want anyone thinking I just was out looking for Alan's that day. But what different poems they are. Mestec, so tight and sweaty and tense. And I have a rendezvous with death so romantic, so poetic. That's the great thing about poetry. You can talk about similar subjects in a million different ways. I would say check out the Faber Book of War Poetry. I'd loan you mine, but I've got to get it back to the parish priest. But yeah, it's got loads of brilliant and surprising stuff. So that's it for another series of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget you can find all of the previous series and episodes from wherever you get your podcasts.